Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in banter, the amazing, the wonderful, my dear friend, THR's chief TV critic, Daniel Feinberg. What's happening, Dan? I feel as if I don't praise you enough, Leslie. You're also pretty great. Aw, look at this. We're off to a great start this week. I just don't want the listeners to think that you say nice things about me every week and I don't respond in kind. So Leslie's also terrific, y'all. I think you're just saying that because we went to the Dodger game and had a great time. We did. Yeah. So what's in the headlines this week, Leslie? Funny you should ask, Dan. Is it Um, really funny? No, it's really not. In the headlines this week, Paramount Network has handed out a series order to Michael Chiklis' border drama called Coyote from Breaking Bad favorite Michelle McLaren. Elsewhere on the series order front, Warner Media's streaming service has picked up two new shows, both from the showrunner of Netflix limited series Maniac. On the overall deal side of things, Happy Endings creator David Casp has left Sony for Universal. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel star Rachel Brosnahan has signed a first look deal with Amazon. And Oscar and Grammy winner Mary J. Blige has signed a first-look deal with Lionsgate TV. Elsewhere, Michael Chabon has signed on to serve as a showrunner on Star Trek Picard for CBS All Access. On the casting couch this week, Lena Haiti is the latest Game of Thrones star to book her TV follow-up and is set to star in Showtime's drama pilot Rita, based on the Danish series. And she's also joined the voice cast of Netflix's Dark Crystal prequel series. On the development side... David E. Kelly is back on broadcast and has signed on to adapt Michael Connelly's bestseller, The Lincoln Lawyer, for CBS, which was home to The Crazy Ones, if you remember that comedy, right, Dan? I do remember that that was a thing that existed on CBS. Uh, My parents, who binged Rita in, I think, two to three weeks, are going to be very excited, at least by the idea of a Rita remake. They might be very offended as sticklers and originalists. And I'm curious about the Michael Chabon Picard thing, because it seems like a not wholly illogical pairing, but also a, come on, why are you not making the Yiddish Policeman's Union TV series pairing? He's been involved with all, all the CBS All Access Discovery stuff for at least a few months, maybe even longer. Yeah, this obviously they sort of gave him a tryout to see if this is something that he can or wants to he do. Did, he did one of the shorts. Yep, short, I'm, tr- short tricks. And he's obviously brilliant. I just feel as if the TV medium is ready for several of his books that have been stymieing film people for years. And I want to see some of those coming to screen. But so. sometimes you want to do your passion projects. And if he's a giant Trekkie, which I believe he is, to do this one, 
there you go. I would think Cavalier and Clay might be, in, to some degree, a passion project for Michael Chabot. I'm not disputing that. I'm just saying maybe, you know, Star Trek maybe is a little higher for him. I don't know. No, no. And, and honestly, this this kind of elevates Picard from moderately interesting to me to potentially extremely interesting. So I can be there. But anyway, if we had more to say about that topic, we should have made it we have one of the week's topics. But it's not. It's not. Instead, leading off this week. Number one. It's a TV miracle. One Day at a Time is officially coming back for season four on Pop. Yes, Pop, the cable network best known for airing Shit's Creek and a bunch of syndication shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and my favorite, Dawson's Creek. They also aired that show with Anna Paquin where she played a publicist. I watched all the episodes of that show, Leslie. Dan, you're a completionist. It doesn't surprise me you watched all those episodes. But yes, this is news that is breaking as we speak. It's just like breaking all over the place. Yes, this is a groundbreaking deal. It's the first time that we've seen a scripted original show move from a streaming platform to a cable network or any network for that matter. There's so much going on. Like I mentioned, this is a rare move. It's a TV miracle. And uh, joining us to talk about it, executive producer and co-showrunner Mike Royce. Hey, Mike. Hey. Thank you so much for taking the time of what I assume is a uh, somewhat eventful afternoon for you. <laughs> I mean, uh, I have someone in my office and we're trying to uh, write something that is not one day at a time, but it's being really hard to not <laughs> turn into one day at a time. Well, we, we appreciate you focusing on one day at a time for 15 to 20 for us. I appreciate, uh, listen, you know, we got to get this nation uh, to now purchase the pop network in bulk. Huh. Isn't it? Wait, I thought it was basic cable, right? It's not premium, right? <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people calling their cable providers right now going, do I have pop TV? That is my mom amongst them. Do I have pop TV? Oh, I'm sure your mom would love Shit's Creek. I, I, you know, I think she probably would. I, um, I need to uh, get my whole family on uh, watching that. And I mean, everything, I guess, uh, uh, 90210 reruns, I think, are on there. <laughs> Dawson's Creek, <laughs> Buffy. ER, Buffy, I think yeah. they have. It used to be the TV Guide Network, right? right. Exactly. It did. It used to be, you know, we, we can get into this later, but yeah, it was for a while co-owned by Lionsgate and CBS, and CBS acquired full control of it. I think it was last year or the year before, but that's not what's interesting. What's, you know, first of all, <laughs> congratulations on this. Can you talk us through this deal? I mean, this is four months in the making since the Netflix cancellation. Sure. Well, I feel like I've gotten a little bit of news every day for four months. Literally the moment that the show was canceled, you know, Sony was like, we're going to find a new home. This needs to live on. And, you know, you hear that I've been canceled plenty of times. Um, some would say too many times. I guess I would say that. Um, but, you know, it's always everyone in the spirit of, oh, this, you know, you got robbed and we're going to find a new place. And this is my third pretty serious Save Our Show campaign. We went through a pretty big one for men of a certain age and then another pretty big one for Enlisted. And, and Enlisted came close to coming back at Yahoo when Yahoo was trying to do originals, too, if memory serves. That is, uh, memory serves very well because, ironically enough, and uh, weirdly bringing tears to my eyes, is that this is basically the five-year anniversary of when I got super disappointed and mad at Sony, where I wasn't 
I wasn't at Sony at this point, uh, because community, they saved community with this yeoman's effort to to save their show, and they kind of beat Enlisted out for uh, to get over to Yahoo, and they got a whole another season out of it, and I was like, damn, you know, those Sony people, they really fight for their shows, and then here I am five years later, and, I, you know, like I said, I mean, they... They live up to the rep. They, uh, it's a, they, they fought tooth and nail, and they called. They, they were getting on the phone with us with networks that I promise you, I have never ever heard of. Uh, they, I mean, that's just a way of saying they could talk to everyone, big and small, and figured out creative ways to go at this. And every day was a new, like, okay, well, this place passed, but now we're on to this place, and you know, we're thinking about this, and you know, this, this sharing thing, and um, they looked at it from every angle, and. Um, I just can't give them enough credit. Was this a circumstance where you kind of were able to convince yourself throughout the process that at some point the right match was going to come? Or was there ever a moment where you thought, OK, we're out of options now. Maybe this really is the end. You know, it never got to like, we're definitely out of options. There were definitely weeks where it was like, well, this, you know, we just didn't hear anything. So this feels like just because we're not hearing news, there must be no news. We went through pilot season and I think talking to the broadcast networks got delayed while everyone figured out their pilots and that kind of extended the process um, of just checking out who was interested and who who was not. Um, but no, ne I mean, never. But I mean, I, I would say that I fully moved on and then fully have come back because I just didn't know it was a long time. And the longer it takes, the more you just go. I don't you know, I mean, I hope it happens. But but then, you know, things started to heat up uh, the last month or two. Yeah. And this is a historic deal. We mentioned that this is the first streaming scripted original show to move from one platform to a cable network. Usually it's obviously the other way around as Netflix has revived more shows than I can count. Look, being part of such a groundbreaking deal like this it must be incredibly complicated. We know that there were some rights that prevented One Day at a Time from moving to another streaming service that were included in the original Netflix contract. But can you talk a little bit about how hard this process was to close? We're reporting that Pop is getting the first three seasons of the show, so it's a library deal. It's almost like reverse syndication. I, I'm not even avoiding the question. I can't speak to that because I feel like I've been told so many scenarios that I actually don't know what the true one is um, as far as that stuff goes, you know, as far as like the details. Um, I, what I know is that they're picking up, Fop Pop is picking up the fourth season and, this, you know, that that's where it'll be. And there's other, <laughs> there's other consider, I mean, the, I know that the, a lot of the last few weeks we're figuring out all the, I wish I knew the meaning of this word, but the downstream uh, stuff and, you know, I mean, all those details that you're talking about, I just, I honestly don't know the details and wish I could speak to it more, but I can't. What about uh, what you've been told about budget wise? I mean, going from a company like Netflix to a CBS owned niche cable network like Pop, which is, you know, obviously it has some critical favorites. Dan keeps has mentioned Schitt's Creek, um, airs a lot of acquired content and syndicated content. But have you been told that your budget will be impacted at all for season four? How will that compare? Yeah, it's it's a little bit impacted, but I would say, you know, we, that was part of making the deal. And we were doing a normally budgeted sitcom and now we're doing a slightly less, you know, a little bit, a little bit discounted <laughs> budgeted sitcom. But it's fully in line with the range of what all sitcoms are made under. 
you know, it's, we, I mean, Gory and I had this discussion many times. We were never, we would never come back and do a show that we couldn't, you know, feel like just monetarily didn't give us the resources that we need to make the same show. Well, when you've been in the room, I assume that you're going to have to now go back to a standard sort of 21, 22 minute sitcom format. When you've been in the room and you've been able to write to 27 or 28 minutes, have you been kind of conscious in your mind of what those additional six minutes per episode have been and, and how you want to keep kind of the heart of the show, but also the multicam funny of it? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that'll be a great challenge. Um, it's an interesting combination of this is a show that... Um, is a traditional broadcast, traditional television format, you know, almost more traditional than than a lot of because we don't even have any music on the sitcom like normal like Norman's shows used to have. Um, so it's it's both a throwback and a new thing, and now it's on a format that is the the format that it traditionally. Uh, has been on, which is with commercials. So we're going to have to learn a little bit to write to that. I don't think the show, I mean, I think, it, you know, shorter we can we can deal with. Um, we now know what we do well as a show. And if that has to occur in, you know, a slightly shorter format, uh, we'll be experimenting with it a little bit. And we're actually really looking forward to it. Um, it's just a kind of a fun new way to look at it. But I guess I'd be more worried if it, like if our show was super experimental and only could exist on a streaming format. But this is the place where <laughs> these shows were invented uh, with the uh, uh, commercial breaks and, you know, that kind of thing. So we're 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 looking forward to it. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing that I find uh, so funny about this deal is as part of the pact, CBS, the network that aired the original, that aired Norman Lear's original One Day at a Time series 40 years ago, <laughs> will also have a window to airing this after it runs on pop. Right. It's uh, crazy. What was Norman Lear's response when he heard that news? I mean, I just know that the full circle of it is still, I think, throwing his mind for a loop. <laughs> um, I mean, he's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's to be in that family and that, you know, where all he, all of his shows that he is known for is, you know, to have them all sort of back there is just, I, it's mind boggling. Well, what was the process like this afternoon of breaking the news to the various stars? Uh, it's a group text that is full of uh, heart emojis and a lot of exclamation points and uh, some really intense all caps uh, things happening. So, you know, it's been a, it's one of those things where it's like a slow motion. Obviously, we've been heating up and keeping people aware. And there was a point in the last week or two where it's like, OK, this now looks pretty certain, but we need to dot the T's, T's and cross the I's. Uh, you know the expression is. <laughs> it's been a long day already. It's only lunchtime and it's a long day. So, yeah, I mean, you know, everyone is ecstatic and... Um, we uh, we've talked to we talked to them individually kind of before this happens. Now it's it, it all happened. It got closed extremely quickly uh, at the last minute. So they wanted to get the announcement out now. July 4th is coming out. So, you know, now we have to go back and have have uh, celebratory conversations. And this was pretty against the wall. I mean, I think I heard that the cast options were expiring at the end of June. Is that right? Uh, I don't know. That is a quite I think some of them were and some of them weren't. And I don't know is I don't know the answer. But yeah, I don't. Yeah. I, I mean, against the wall in that sense, I think also um, trying to make sure that we match whatever is going to be Pop's schedule. And, you know, it all needed to get done quick.
Yeah. Um, have you been given any kind of uh, sense of what kind of ratings to expect now that you're on a platform that actually, well, is uh. measured by Nielsen? <laughs> uh, we have not, and I don't know what the expectation is. I assume they uh, hope we do very well for them, but I don't even know what the what the metric is really. I got to go look. But this is not something that's being thought of in your mind as kind of a fourth and final season to go out on your own terms. This is a, if it's successful for four, you guys could go five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, as required. Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. I mean, I don't think Rita's going to stop after ten, you know. <laughs> The reason that people wanted to save the show is because this is the type of show, uh, I'm, in addition to you know fans enjoying the show, it's it's obviously the kind of show that has more stories to tell, that is not done. You know, it's it's a kind of format that where you can keep going, and, and it wasn't uh, some kind of a giant finale uh, end of everybody's personal journey. Um, so, so yeah, we're, it's, it's definitely like with an eye on the future and we'll just see what happens this season. It's a very <laughs> experimental situation. No one's ever done anything like this before. And uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy to think about. You're making me a little anxious, to be honest, as I thought I'm talking about it. <laughs> Well, that feels like a good note for us to, to end it and let's move on here. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations to you and the whole One Day at a Time family. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for all the support and, and, uh, and having me on. Batting second this week, The Office is officially leaving Netflix. We knew this day was coming, Dan, but here it is. Number two. From one show leaving its home to find a new home to another show leaving a home to find a new home. So yes, uh, NBC Universal announced on Thursday that The Office, you might have heard of it, it aired on NBC, it was successful, will move to the NBC Universal's unnamed streaming service that we might as well really just call NBC Universal Plus or Comcast Plus or NBC Plus, NBC or Plus, whatever it is, just stick plus NBC in front of Universal, it. NBC Universal, Comcast Plus. Universal Television Plus, whatever it is. Netflix wound up being outbid for the nine season library of the show with NBC Universal streaming service, according to you, at least paying its sibling studio $100 million per year for five years. That is a lot of money. Talk me through what went down with this acquisition. Well, Dan, if we're going to be talking about $500 million deals on this podcast every week, I think you and I may want to reconsider our professions here. <sighs> or we need to stop being impressed by $500 million deals. Yeah, That's the really. other thing. If just every week someone's getting $500 million, it's like, whatever, let's move on. <laughs> yeah. But as you mentioned, though, this was a bidding process, which is interesting considering that The Office was aired on NBC. Their studio counterpart, Universal Television, owns it. And as such, Universal Television, it wasn't a sweetheart deal to say, oh, we're just going to keep this for our streaming service. That's not what happened. Instead, there was an actual auction for library rights to all, what is it, nine seasons of The Office? That's a massive library. We know that library content is in high demand as all these streaming services look to bulk up with content to, to woo potential subscribers in addition to originals. So Universal held this auction. There were as many as five bidders, I've been told, all the usual suspects that you would imagine. So Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, I'm told Apple kicked the tires, NBC streaming, 
and Universal held this auction in a bid to protect the show's profit participants. So think Ricky Gervais, who created the original series and tweeted ka-ching about uh, this deal. The original show's creator, Greg Daniels, obviously the cast, a lot of the exec producers, depending on how big their deals were, all have profit participation. So Universal Television held this auction, keeping all of the buyers apart and keeping everything as clear as can be and as separate can be in a bid to make sure that all of those profit participants got the best deal possible. Because this is otherwise, it, that's that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. If this becomes a sweetheart deal, oh, Universal Television sold it to its streaming service for less than market value, that's a big problem and a big financial problem if that doesn't happen. And that's that's interesting because that was going to be my stupid question is it this ultimately ends up being a company writing a check to itself. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. It, it almost seems abnormally, I don't know, altruistic or kind to all of these people that they decided to do that. But as you say, it prevents a lawsuit. And that's probably something that's in everyone's best interests. Yeah, that that is it's a lot of money and it's a big deal. I'm interested that Apple was involved. So I'm told that they were at least inquired. I don't know how serious any of those outlets were, but obviously we know Netflix was very interested in in trying to keep it. There are reports online that they bid as much as $90 million per year to keep the office. 100 million trumps that. (laughs) Sorry, basic math. Sorry, Netflix. You didn't bid enough. No, and I understand why Netflix obviously would want to keep it. I understand why Hulu would have wanted to keep it. It, from, From my perspective, any interest from Apple on this yeah. becomes interesting. And you can sort of understand because they do have a new show coming with Steve Carell. Yes, Steve Carell is doing the morning show drama with Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. He is not a series regular on that. I'm told it's a recurring role and he signed a one-year deal. He also is starring and exec producing and co-created a Netflix comedy with Greg Daniels called Space Force. And he's also got a show on... Wait, are we talking about Steve Carell? <laughs> I was getting confused because Greg Daniels also has another show for Amazon without Steve Carell. So you've got a lot of the office people spread across the streaming landscape. I'm only interested to try to figure out kind of because we've obviously talked about this over and over and over again about what the... It's a little hard to keep track these days. Of what the incentive or enticement would be to get people to watch Apple Plus when it actually exists, whenever it's going to be, and to pay whatever we're going to have to pay and all of that, which we still don't know, which is kind of baffling. I don't really have a clue what they're doing. But the thing we've talked about over and over again is that having a library helps and having The Office, while it might be only a one show library as a starting point. But it's a one show library with nine seasons of 200 plus episodes that as far as we've been told, and who knows how, how accurate any of the streaming data is, because we've talked about it a hundred times, we don't know how realistic any of it is. But the buzz is that The Office is the most streamed show on SVOD. Oh, it's a it's a cornerstone piece yeah, of library. It's, it doesn't. I don't think it counts as a full library. And also, we keep saying nine seasons, but there are at least two seasons without Steve Carell that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. It's library content. And that's what is the latest part of our industry to be disrupted by Netflix. Because if you think about it, you go back to when Netflix first started as a DVD by mail company, you could watch the office and and request the first three discs of season one and send it back and, and binge it that way. That's how Netflix launched. And that's how a lot of these other streaming services are looking to do the same. But they're also just being aggressive from the beginning 
to make sure that they have both library content and originals. Because at some point, as Netflix knew this point was coming, that library stuff will disappear. Disney was the first to do this a couple of years ago when they announced their plans for their streaming service. And they said, we will pull back all of our stuff from Netflix. That's been happening. And now you see Disney Plus and they've got all of the Marvel shows. They've got all Star Wars. I mean, and this is and all the Marvel movies at some point, once those deals expire, this is the, the same thing is going to eventually start happening. But what I find really interesting is, you know, when you talk about Apple, this is a tech company that has spent billions at this point on original programming with no library yet. And apparently know the office. So what is the next domino to fall? I feel like we have to, in the same way that we talk about that with the overall deals every week, and apparently David Casp signing a new overall deal was not sufficient to get his own segment. Uh, I'm glad to know that we at least have, you know, thresholds. Uh, I mean, that was, I'm told that was a big deal, but it, it's also, you know, he's the latest producer to leave Sony. Adam F. Goldberg left for Disney. Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg left for Lionsgate. I mean, but at the same time, Sony signed Phil Lord and Chris Miller to do Spider-Man shows, and David Casp is, is a good signing for Universal, because if that studio is going to be making a big comedy push, he's one of the good guys to do it. But, is the, happy endings, is, but is the next domino simply Warner Brothers taking friends back? Is it something involving yeah. Big Bang Theory? What, it, what do you think comes next? I think the Warner Brothers thing, we've talked about friends a lot on this podcast. And yeah, 100% friends will likely be that next domino to fall. 100% likely. I mean... <laughs> It, we've we've talked about this for months. Yes. Kevin Riley, who oversees Warner Media Streaming Service for the Creative, has said, and I believe I'm going to butcher this quote, but the gist is there that it's not a good idea to share crown jewels like Friends, which implies why would you put Friends on Netflix and on Warner Streaming? You need to entice people to pay for your streaming service. Warner Media Streaming, which we ha also hasn't been named yet, so Warner Media Streaming Plus, Warner Media, whatever we want to call it, Plus, that service is in the in the midst of of aggressively buying up originals, and it's going to need a library too. You know, I would imagine Harry Potter will be a big thing for them. Where I, I don't know what those streaming deals are like, but when you think about Friends. Warner Brothers licensed the show to Netflix in December of last year for all of 2019. That deal was worth between 80 and 100 million dollars just for one year, comparable to The Office. Again, you want to talk about big hits on Netflix in terms of licensed shows, The Office, Friends, Shameless, Grey's Anatomy, shows with big libraries and a big base. And I think Friends at some point soon before year's end will probably be the next one to move to move platforms. And you mentioned Big Bang Theory. That's what I find particularly interesting, because as Joe Flint reported in The Wall Street Journal a couple of months ago, there has never been a streaming deal for Big Bang Theory for the library, because as part of TBS's syndication deal that they signed, and it was a groundbreaking, eye-popping, like $1.5 million per episode with nearly 300 episodes, that's a massive deal. But included in that was a point that said, we are the exclusive home. It will not be sold to a streamer. So that basically says at some point there's some paperwork to deal with there because Warner Media having the biggest multi-camera comedy in, in history, the longest running one in history on its streaming platform as an exclusive. We saw what it did for TBS. It elevated all of their originals. It brought more eyeballs to that network. Big Bang Theory on streaming could do the same for Warner Media. I watch at least 15 to 20 seconds of uh, the end of episodes of the Big Bang Theory every week before uh, Samantha B. That is that is pretty much where I know that 
deal exists. I mean, my wife and I watch Friends every single night in syndication, in syndication with commercials on like Nick at Night every single night. Well, keep in mind that Comcast, MTBS. that Comcast, NBC, Uni, whatever, they've been saying the whole time that it's going to be a free service. So people are going to be watching The Office with yeah. commercials, at least until they tell us that there's an ad free version. So anyway, these are all things that we will need to follow in the future moving forward. Yep. Number three. That brings us to our third topic of the week. Batting third, July is around the corner, and as usual, it's a jam-packed month for events and summer debuts, which is unlike things that we've used to see in this industry when it was just a broadcast ecosystem. See, and I'm not completely sure I agree. Last night, I was watching Big Brother, or let's say two nights ago, because we're recording this on Thursday, but it'll go up on Friday. Anyway, I was watching Big Brother, as I do, and CBS has been aggressively advertising Love Island, and for good reason. And I was watching it and I was thinking, man, it's really presumptuous in this peak TV era to think that anyone is going to want to watch an unscripted variation on Paradise Hotel five nights a week. That's presumptuous. Why would anyone think anyone would want that? But how many nights a week do you spend watching Big Brother? Well, only three. And sometimes I fast forward, hey, three versus five. That's, you know, do the math on that. But Then we started saying we were going to do this topic, and I pulled out my July premiere list. I don't want to say it's an awful month for TV, because there's a lot of good stuff, and we'll start listing it in a bit. But at least for the first half of the month, unless you're a fan of the moon landing or sharks, (laughs) it's a thin couple weeks. And that doesn't mean that there aren't things that you should be watching, because if I still have 75 shows to be catching up on, you probably also have 75 shows to catch up on. I mean, I still need to watch Raimi, which you've been raving about for weeks, and I just haven't had time. We all make choices. You you had to watch uh, Dead to Me twice. (laughs) I did. And I watch a lot of baseball, so. (laughs) I watch a fair amount of sports also, and a fair amount of, I don't know, Democratic candidate debates. I feel like that'll be half the month. But I saw what the premiere weeks look like. And just in terms of scripted stuff, too. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, OK, well, I mean, I guess if there was a time to attempt to be doing five nights a week of a Paradise Hotel, not really ripoff, but variation, this is as close as it gets. This is kind of a slow month. Yeah, but there's still look, it's, it's still a crowded field, especially when you look into streaming and cable debuts. And we'll run through those really quickly. But uh, season three of Stranger Things launches July 4th. VH1, not MTV, will air the long gestating uh, rebooted third season of Scream. USA Network uh, will premiere the final season of Suits, as well as its spinoff Pearson. Netflix launches the final season of Orange is the New Black, which, like Stranger Things, is a massive premiere. Um, Hulu will also debut its Veronica Mars revival on the same day, July 26th, which also happens to be when Amazon launches its comic book drama, The Boys. And then rounding out the month, Hulu's got its anthological take on four weddings and a funeral. Then you get into the broadcast, and you know our colleague, uh, the talented Rick Porter, did a great piece on the summer broadcast strategies. And the five networks have increased originals 30% this summer with 55 series, scripted and unscripted, airing between Memorial Day and the start of the fall season in September as they really try to keep the lights on and compete with cable and streaming. And we can get into those topics, but like to your point, CBS will launch Love Island for five nights a week beginning July 9th. The CW's roster of originals has grown. They've got a lot of Canadian imports and scripted shows and shows from its digital platform, CW Seed, plus the series finale of Jane the Virgin. That's July 31st. NBC is unscripted, unscripted, unscripted. 
And they've got proven summer performers like America's Got Talent and American Ninja Warrior, which is one of my favorites. And those join Songland and Bring the Funny, which is the latter of, is hosted by Keenan Thompson. And then ABC is, you know, has its mix that, that that's worked for them for the last couple of years with retro game shows joining stuff like The Bachelorette and new mini golf show Holy Moly and scripted show Grand Hotel and Reef Break, the latter of which was a low budget original design specifically for summer, which means it's at a different price point. So, and then we left out Fox, which is, is taking some big swings. Beverly Hills 90210, the reboot of a reboot of a show behind the show, trying to make the new show. And then whatever the hell, what just happened is. And a game show called Spin the Wheel. And of course, Dick Wolf's First Responders Live. It's a hodgepodge. It's And it's a hodgepodge more than an embarrassment of riches, I would say. I think that there's no question that there are people out there, for example, who are really looking forward to season two of the CW's The Outpost. I don't know who those people are, and I guess those people concern me a tiny bit. <laughs> but, you know, how people choose to spend their time is on them. But there are a lot of shows kind of of that ilk of shows that maybe didn't get that much traction the first time around, but are still coming back. So there's a second season of Stars's uh, fairly mediocre Sweet Bitter, which I know had some fans, but definitely not much critical traction. Harlots is a show on Hulu, for example, that I know the people who like it really love it, but it's not a show people talk about all that much. Snowfall, which now sort of goes down as John Singleton's final credit, and so we'll get an extra boost of publicity out of that, honestly. But it's still the rare FX show that people really just don't discuss all that often. I mean, we've talked about this a lot. There's a lot of great content. We were just talking about this, about Raimi, and, and you mentioned America to me. Great content that is just going under the radar because there's so much stuff. But I feel like July more than other months is a here's the content that we know is under the radar month. I don't know that there are that many. It's sort of shows that have built in audiences and it's fine. You know, so I don't think at this point Orange is the New Black is about to add viewers. I think it's going to be a lot of people who are going to come and see how they're going to end that show. Yeah, I think people who may have, have fallen off of that may come back. I think that's possible. I, you know, something like Stranger Things on Netflix, it can obviously still get viewers Whatever. I don't think anyone's allegedly worried about that show. Allegedly their biggest original. We've seen, you know, there's a massive line of merchandising stuff and apparel and toys. And it's been everywhere since it broke out. But you mentioned Scream on VH1. I mean, that's like the most afterthoughty of afterthought I shows. I mean, that show has been in the can for two years. I, I, I think it was renewed back in 2016. <laughs> it's I, I yeah, it's it's basically the designated survivor of cable. I think three seasons, three different showrunners maybe four different showrunners. I can't remember. But this season's an entirely different thing, isn't yep. it? It's basically a new. new show this it's season. It's basically so. what it should have been in season two, which is an anthology. Yeah, With I, a new take, new location, new cast. And what's actually interesting now, though, and maybe this was behind the delay, I'm not sure, but they're actually using the ghost face mask, which for the first two seasons they weren't able to because of a legal issue. And I know that that's exciting for you and that you've it's, built that into centerpieces of a of a story. But it, look, but... If you're, there are a lot of fans of that Scream franchise, my wife among them. And having Ghostface in there, I understand, is a big deal because it was a big deal when Scream originally premiered with its first season on MTV, when MTV was still doing scripted shows. So, But haven't we moved beyond any enthusiasm for that? I, I just well, can't imagine I, I still that... think that there's enthusiasm for it. But I mean, look, this isn't a, a segment about Scream, right? <laughs> I mean, it can be, we but... We can totally do it. Whereas, if you're a big fan of the moon landing, holy cow, do... National Geographic's got like 50 hours of moon landing uh, coverage. And, and Smithsonian's got some stuff. 
Smithsonian History Channel, et cetera, et cetera. Somewhere in and this month. And then there's the competition for, for um, all your shark feeding frenzy. Obviously, Discovery is, is the grand master of Shark Week. And then Nat Geo's doing stuff. And I think Sci-Fi is doing like a marathon of different Sharknados and other Ian Ziering-led weird low-budget <laughs> crazy movies, one like one-off movies. I've, I've often been amused by the blatant ripping offness of what Nat Geo does with their shark stuff. And that's what Nat Geo does or what Discovery does. Well, Discovery is the one with Shark Week, isn't it? Yeah, you just said Nat Geo. Yeah, but but Nat Geo also does their shark programming, which they do explicitly because it's we're going to basically be like a little sucker fish on the top of Shark Week and get ratings off of it. So that amuses me. And that's the same thing that happens in television. When one scripted show works, this is us. You start to see a lot of other networks doing family dramas with it with a twist. Right. Like what's the ABC show whose title I can never remember? A Million Little Things. Yes. That is a show that existed. Yeah. But that's a This Is Us ripoff. And, right. and Fox had their big spring success with uh, Paradise Hotel, hence Love Island. Which also apparently, according to Rick Porter, vanished off the air after only a handful of episodes and very under the radar. I think they burnt, I feel like they burnt it off. Uh, it was not as abrupt as back in the day when Fox cannibalized itself with Forever Eden building off of Paradise Hotel. And, and my ongoing joke on that one is that the cast of Forever Eden is still down in a jungle in Guatemala and no one has told them. And basically they're just they're just building strains of super herpes to unleash on the world. At I some don't even point. I don't even know what that show is, Dan, but it was Paradise Hotel only even tawdrier. Well, I, I think we're getting off top. But the whole point of, of this segment is July is a very interesting month. It's it has turned into something that, you know, look, a lot of the broadcast networks used to air repeats in this time period because it's in the summer viewing goes down because weather is nice people take vacation kids are off school etc and that's really changed in this ptv landscape where all these broadcast networks are looking to keep the lights on with summer originals and we've talked about the cw before and what they're doing they keep picking up more shows they renewed their entire slate except for of course the shows that were in their final seasons because they're trying to do less of these shows like the outpost less of these cheap canadian (laughs) imports and more high-end well high-end for the cw scripted originals and that's no offense to the CW. What the CW does is is great for its lane. So if you're going to see shows like Supergirl or, or even Jane the Virgin leading into the summer months, like, look, we said that, that the Jane finale airs July 31st. That's summer programming. That's part of the CW's efforts to do year-round originals and do year-round originals that are good instead of necessarily low-cost Canadian imports. And in the spirit of July being a sort of strange and hit and miss month, I feel like we should probably mention that we are taking next week off due to the timing of the 4th of July holiday. And let's be honest, we need a little break. We could also probably use a break. I'll just use the time to watch screeners, but whatever. I'm going to sit by the pool, Dan. You, can, you should come over and not watch TV for a little bit. I can maybe take an hour off. But yes, yeah, so next, next week we will be off and uh, maybe you'll miss us. And the following week we'll be back to talk about Stranger Things and other things that we couldn't talk about now anyway because of embargoes. Yes, and that brings us to our fourth topic of the week. Number four. For our next topic, the June 24th deadline for Emmy nomination voting has come and gone. Hundreds of dramas and comedies and even more writers and actors have done their campaigning. With nominations being announced July 16th, here to join us this week is THR's awards analyst and host of the amazing THR podcast Awards Chatter and friend of the five, Scott Feinberg. What's up, Scott? Hi, thank you for having me back. Welcome, Scott. So first, I want to say we just finished the uh, Tony season, which is sort of like your, it's kind of your C gig. 
On the other hand, I really feel like asking, so how'd you do on your predictions for the Tony, Scott? <laughs> well, thank you for teeing that one up. I, uh, I wish it could apply to every award season I do, but this one, we, I went 17 for the 17 categories that we dealt with. So that was... Holy sh**, you picked all 17 times. That was the, you know, you're a baseball fan, Leslie, and... You're batting uh, a thousand. Uh, well, you know, it's the dream of the perfect game. It may only come once in a career, if that, so I, I will relish it while I have it. And then, as you guys know, it can also go in the other direction for me, so I appreciate all that. All I am saying is that at this moment, yes. your credibility could not be higher, <laughs> and thus we need to make sure we milk every well, second of Mr. Perfecto, Scott Feinberg. <laughs> and how did you wind up doing on the Emmys last year? Not to ruin your perfect game. <laughs> you know what, what's but, so uh, funny is it, it always, I care so much and, and then the next day I've forgotten. I swear, in some years I've done great and some years it hasn't been that great. But what I think you do is it's like, mentally you have space in your brain for only so much and then you're right on to the next seasons because it basically one bleeds right into the it's next. It's relentless, yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, you're always going to remember your perfecto that on the Tonys. One, yes. And so, you know, <laughs> next year when that begins, yeah. you're going to have to Me and my mom will always remember. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, let's start off with what the deadline that closed this week actually means. Give us the short version of what the first round deadline sure. meant. Basically, there are... 25,000 or so people in the Television Academy. That's a lot more than the Film Academy or the various groups that, that vote for the Tony Awards. This is a huge, huge group, and they are divided into branches, or as, with, or as they call them, peer groups. So you have the performers peer group for actors and actresses. You have directing peer group, writing, editing, all the different areas of the business. And each of those people gets to pick nominees from the entire field of eligible contenders for the categories that apply to their field. So in the case of the Emmys, there are many categories that apply to every one of these fields with editing even, for instance, it's not just best editing, it's best editing for a single camera comedy series and on and on and on. And so they have many categories. Everybody gets to pick the nominees for, with, for the categories within their specific areas and then everyone collectively votes for what they call the program categories. So whether you're an editor, a performer, or anything, you get to contribute to the selection of the best drama series, comedy series, limited series, and the various other categories, other, other program categories. You have your Emmy predictions that ran last week on the site, and you had some really interesting picks. Can you talk a little bit first before we get, in, get into... All the official selections and one, the ones that you think could be game changers and really cut through. But what has stood out this season for you for campaigning? I think the gulf between Netflix and the rest of the field is going to be more marked than ever this year. It's obviously been a, a trying year for HBO with some turnover at the at the management levels. Yeah, lots at, of executive changes. Lot, and of yeah. course, the disappointing final season of Game of Thrones. Yes, which they'll probably still be able to pull off a win for Best Drama Series just for lack of one obvious alternative. And also on the comedy series side, it's the end of Veep, but they'll also... They'll, they're in a tighter one with Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but they may they may win. So, you know, how bad a year could it be for HBO if they win drama series and comedy series, maybe even limited series with Chernobyl? But they tied last year with Netflix. They and, tied and for most wins, and they lost for the first time in many years in terms of total nominations. nominations yeah. which, first time in 18 years that, yes. that someone other than HBO was the leader. Exactly, and I think that 
first of all, that was a bit shocking to them. They didn't realize it was that soon on the horizon for that to happen. I don't think that number is going to get any smaller anytime soon here in terms of the Gulf. Netflix, we, you know, I just did a column where I really looked at how they've how they've chosen to campaign all of their programs. We know that because of their push to sort of fortify themselves with the rise of Disney Plus and Apple and more Plus media, and all these other things, yeah. they are they have loaded up on original content. Much of it very good, but even if it's not, it's very watched, which people can only vote for things that they've seen. And I think the bottom line is that Netflix could have three or four nominees in many of the major categories. In one category, the variety special pre-recorded, which includes concert performances, stand-up, all that. They might even get the entire category, which in the era of peak TV is insane. And so, you know, the my main thing is to just keep an eye on on this remarkable ascent of Netflix, which is also, to, it's to some degree reflective of the amount of quality programming they have, to some degree reflective of the, just that's where people go to watch cool programming in the way that everyone used to do that for HBO, and many still do, but also that their campaigns are unparalleled. This FYC space that they've had at Raleigh Studios in Hollywood, where almost every night there's something awesome that TV Academy members want to go to, whether it's a conversation that Oprah is moderating with Ava DuVernay about when they see us, her limited series, or it's Bruce Springsteen promoting his concert special in a conversation with Martin Scorsese, or Jimmy Kimmel being brought in to help Ellen promote her comedy special. It's uh, Nobody is in the same universe in terms of the amount of money that's spent doing it and effort and staff that's even just devoted to pursuing Emmys and Oscars at the other part of the year. And so it's it's very interesting to just see their ascent. Are we at the point where people are going to start saying, okay, it's become too much? I think that has been happening, uh, you know, for a few years because, you know, the Netflix was, was really, I believe, the first to start these FYC spaces, which Amazon and others now do variations of. But it was because they had so much programming that the infrastructure that existed within the TV Academy to do sort of promotional nights couldn't accommodate the amount of programming. So Netflix's answer has always been... Yeah, you've got multiple networks vying for one night to to bring their cast and creators into the TV Academy's theater in North Hollywood, right? It's like there's like there's six or seven deep and there's like a whole pool system to get to even get a night. And it's just I mean, it's it's crazy. And Netflix is set, you know, their answer to anyone who complains that they are spending too much or, you know, overdoing it. They say, look, nothing's stopping anyone else from doing this. Now, those other people would say something called money is stopping it. But at the same time, you know, if you start putting spending caps, that means that you have to verify. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's actually possible to enforce the spending of, of various networks in terms of the TV Academy independently sort of verifying it because they're not going to open their books. On, and they can also say, you know, as we see a lot of shows release their new seasons time to the Emmy season. So what is the line between promoting your new series or your new, you know, your new episodes versus campaigning? It's, it's a very thin line. And also, you know, people have spoken about restraint of trade. Even with Oscar season, some people raise the same complaints. Why when Weinstein at Miramax and then the Weinstein company used to do this, they would say, well, what are you going to, you know, you can't tell us we can't support our projects if we, if we believe in them. So it's a very, it's a very tricky situation. 
Yeah. Now, what do you do during this round? Because obviously you had to do all of your Tony stuff as well, yeah. which, as we may have mentioned, <laughs> led to perfection. But when it comes to, you know, when it gets to the next round, then you right. start interviewing voting members and all of that. In this round, what is your sort of capacity? In the in the yeah. round that's just ended? Yeah. Well, for up until the end of the nomination voting, what, what you're really trying to get a sense of is just what people are watching and excited about because again nobody including the people like us who have a full-time job related to seeing as much as we can it's not possible to see everything so we know the voters many of whom are are still active in their careers are not seeing everything so it's trying to figure out what are people seeing what are they excited about what's everybody talking about what's what's the buzz and then making an educated guess to be honest it's it's inc probably the hardest predictions of nominations are not Oscars or Tonys, it's Emmys because you're picking from such a massive field. And yet there are certain things that we find where once they get in the habit of nominating something, they usually, there's a lot of repeat nominations. If they haven't nominated you for an earlier season, they're rarely going to start nominating you for a later season. There are just certain ways into it, but you know, you can also gauge from how available certain people are on the circuit. Like the example that I'll, I'll just, for whatever reason comes to mind, Ray Seahorn for Better Call Saul had a great fourth season, really great fourth season, and has been much more out there promoting it this season because I think both AMC and her team and probably herself realize not only does she have the the goods to, to compete, but also the, the field of people who are the openings of basically in her category, Best Supporting Actress and Drama Series, there are a lot more vacancies than there were last year when you had three Handmaid's Tales actresses in contention and other Right, but people. this year you've got all the Game of Thrones people who are going to be in that category. They're going to be, yeah. yeah, and I mean, they certainly are going to, it's, it's, there's no guarantee, but I think there are people like, like Ray, like Susan Kalecki, Watson, who had a great season on This Is Us, people who have not been able to break in before, at least see an opening to, and so they've been, you can, you, it's been clear that they've been going harder this season than before doesn't mean, you know, you've also got people from shows that have zero chance that have been going harder. So it's it's just trying to read between the lines. Call out a name of someone with zero chance who's well, been going hard. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, what happened to Megan Amram, right? Emmy for Megan last year. I don't know that that's, they've, the, the TV Academy itself has made the, they've created a rule to basically make it harder for her to get in as well. So, you know, <sighs> she deserves better. Yeah. Well, so you've, Scott, you've mentioned a couple of the big front runners, Veep, Game of Thrones, final seasons. I mean, it's going to be hard to, I mean, those are to me, slam dunk nominees. Yes. What are the, the, the dark horses that you think could slip in or even some of the other, the newcomers? I sure. Mean, I talk a lot about on this podcast about my love for Pose and yes. I think that could easily get in. Obviously just got a couple of big TCA nominations. Yes. <laughs> Thank TCA you, Dan works. Feinberg and company. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a number of rookie shows that are certainly very much in contention. You can start with Succession from HBO, Pose, as you mentioned, Bodyguard from Netflix. Those are, on the drama series side of things, the ones that are probably the most serious contenders. Netflix also has the Kaminsky Method in the comedy series category. Which won the Golden Globe. Which won the Golden Globe. And then a few shows that, that have gotten a lot of buzz since being unveiled after that whole sort of winter awards flurry. So they weren't eligible for the Golden Globes, but stuff like Russian Doll, Dead to Me, those are ones that I'd keep an eye on as well. And then there are a couple that I would say have actually 
that that might defy what we were talking about a moment ago. What I was saying, where if you haven't been nominated for a first season, you rarely get nominated for a subsequent one. But actually, Fleabag, people have sort of caught up to more recently. It seems like, and I think Phoebe Waller Bridge could break in. I think the show itself from Amazon could break in, and so that's one that I would keep an eye on. There, there's it's just been interesting to see. Uh, by the way, I left out in terms of rookie shows on the drama side. Amazon has Homecoming as well, which could really, based on what I'm hearing, make it in there. So yeah, Ju- Julia Roberts Emmy nominee. Ex- yeah, I mean they love Emmy's movie tur- stars. Emmys are turning into the Oscars. They they every year, every year because. But also, you know, in a, it's a compliment to TV because these guys are not finding the good work in movies anymore. It's just there's fewer and fewer ambitious movies. Let's talk a little bit about some of the big surprises. In reading your kind of uh, last up-to-the-minute preview uh, before voting nominations closed, there were some surprises in there. I think you listed Yellowstone from Paramount Network, which is the Kevin Costner Western. Mm-hmm. Twilight Zone, you, th- you think it could have a shot? I mean, what, what are some well, of your, there are your more. Numbers? Those are, for instance, listed under possibilities for yeah. the drama series category, which is a polite way of saying probably not going to happen. But they're in the... There are... There's a push for those. I think the ones basically we break down each category as front runners, major threats, possibilities, and then long shots. And, you know, you want to be inclusive and recognize if there is an effort that it's, you know, maybe, you know, Paramount Network, for instance, though, with Yellowstone has nothing else that they really need to focus on. It's actually, similarly yeah, with I mean, Twilight it's... Zone, CBS All Access, it's that and the good fight. So these guys can sometimes punch above their weight because they are fully focused on one thing or two things as opposed to a Netflix, which has to figure out how to sufficiently push a lot of different things. So I think those are not likely at the end of the day to to really penetrate. But again, it comes back to the TV Academy's fondness for movie stars in those two instances. Costner is still a big deal. And we know a few years ago when he did a, a limited series, Hatfields and McCoys, it did very, very well. So there's an audience for him. And then Twilight Zone's a tough one because it's sort of not really, it's it's like the orange among apples here. It's a episodic anthology series that's listed among drama series, but that's only because the other episodic anthology series had episodes that were long enough to allow one of their episodes to compete in the less competitive TV TV movie movie category. So that's where you've got a Black Mirror episode, Bandersnatch, which they say is a standalone, but it's essentially part of that franchise. You've got the Romanoffs, shows that would never compete individually, probably in the drama series category, but that was not an option for Twilight Zone because none of their episodes met the recently raised TV Academy threshold of minimum runtime. With situations like that, is that the sort of thing where you can already hear rumbling about, okay, we need to change some rules and we need to do it soon? Or do we only get to that point when things do or do not get nominated in a couple weeks? You know, if I can say that my writing is part of the rumbling, the rumblings have already started because I think it's silly that, you know, we now have a resurgence, thanks to Black Mirror and some of these others, there's at least eight or nine episodic anthology series. We've got more on the way. And I think that that's the kind of thing when you've got hundreds of categories, at the Emmys, what's one more category that sort of makes, allows you to not have 
things that shouldn't be competing together. Yeah. You know, to it, judge a show for its its body, it's an, and to judge an anthology for its body of work yeah. when each episode is completely different yeah. or part of a larger story or part of a larger theme. Yes, and it corrupts acting categories too because now you're going to get to the the acting categories that encompass people from TV, movies, and limited series, and you're going to have people competing from Romanoffs and Bandersnatch and whatever, but not the people from Twilight Zone, for instance. So it really does start yeah. to get muddled. I, I need you there to also do something to change the eligibility of SNL people, because that that's the one that really is pissing me off, that we're going to throw away five, four or five nominees in the ultra-competitive comedy series categories for people who should really have their own category at this point. I think point. that's an interesting point, yeah. And I mean, Especially it's, with the volume of scripted comedy and drama. Yes, I mean, it's boxing them out, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, you know, in fairness, it's not only SNL because you had Key and Peele and Amy Schumer and other people, uh, inside Amy Schumer and other people accounting for acting nominations as well. But yeah, I mean, again, there's been a rise, partly because of just the volume of any kind of content. There's been a rise of variety uh, uh, sketch series and... Yeah. Now the other thing that's happened is that apparently people who are like the Roy Wood Juniors on The Daily Show, for instance, correspondents who are not in more than 50 percent of the episodes are also now eligible in this and being submitted in the supporting in a comedy series categories, even though their shows are not supporting. They are only vaguely acting. It's also like, you know, I, I would argue. I mean, it's tough because what do you call The Daily Show? Is it a performative category or is it a I don't know what you do with that I think what Roy Wood Jr. and what Desi Lydic and you know several of those others do is comic acting I mean for, for heaven's sakes in his primary thing Roy Wood Jr. wears a giant fake mustache so <laughs> it, that to me seems fair I just think that there needs to be a category yeah. that is properly reflective of those people because there are going to be supporting actors from shows like Russian Doll yeah, and so right. many other great comedy yes. shows who just aren't going to find room and that pisses me off well, and advance. also not that this negates what you've just said but why not also when there's this much tv we're talking everybody every day we're talking about peak tv why do we still have seven or eight series nominees let's go up to 10 have a round number and let's it only benefits good and, and encourages good tv to recognize good tv when it exists so yeah. you know instead of every year having to say until late in the game where's the americans or where's whatever you know let's let's recognize let's hope to recognize these shows while they're while they're around yeah and that's a drum tim goodman our colleague has been beating for, yes. for years now and he's not wrong well wrapping up let's take a look at some of the acting front runners scott who are the people you think we'll see when emmy nominations are announced in july well i think that there is the potential if you look at the actor in the drama series category, the last two years, Sterling K. Brown's won for This Is Us, and there's obviously great affection for him. You can't say that won't. That's that that could happen again. Even How, though a lot of people kind of soured on This Is Us in season three, they they're you know people get tired of stuff for sure. But I I think that there is a chance based on the way the TV Academy works that they just keep going back to the same thing they've done. However, I think that in terms of rookies. You could see Richard Madden get in there. He won the Golden Globe in this category for Bodyguard. He, he could be a breakthrough. You could have Billy Porter getting in there. But it also could be a year where a Jason Bateman for Ozark, who we know they really like, or Bob Odenkirk for Better Call Saul, somebody who's been nominated but hasn't won could break through. So that's, that's one of the more interesting categories. I think if you go to actress in a drama series, this is a category where 
almost everyone who was nominated last year, with the exception of Sandra Oh, is not eligible to be nominated again this year. So you're going to have a lot of new blood. I think that Jodie Comer will join her this year for Killing Eve. I think you'll probably have Julia Roberts for Homecoming and maybe even somebody like Christine Baranski, who we know the TV Academy loves, but who just there wasn't enough space, basically, for a show on on a streaming service like CBS All Access. Now she'll she'll get in, I think, and, and on and on there. And, of course, half the cast of Game of Thrones. Well, Somewhere. Game of Thrones, particularly in the supporting acting categories, I think that you'll probably see Kit Harington and maybe Amelia Clark get in with, with the leading categories, but supporting are, are much safer bets where you've got Dinklage and then... Maisie Williams. Maisie, for sure. Lena, they seem to nominate every year. I mean, she's year. in, what, two of six episodes? But it becomes a coattail yeah. thing. It's like yeah. we see a game... And, and maybe Sophie Turner, who's never been nominated. Yeah, so, she had a great season, too. Yeah, so you can go on and on with those. And then with comedy... I think the comedy series categories are, in some ways, more interesting this year because there are so many exciting new shows where you could see, you know, people from Russian Doll and Dead to Me and on and yeah, on Yeah, both on. leads from Dead to Me yes. easily get in. yes. Well, excellent. We thank you so much for joining us, Scott. And guess what? We're going to probably have you on a couple more times as we approach the actual Emmys in September. Emmy nominations will be announced July 16th, and the Emmys will air September 22nd on Fox. Still no host yet. We're waiting to see. (laughs) All right. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Number five. This week's new arrivals include The Rook on Stars. Fox's What Just Happened, the after show spoof from Fred Savage, Showtime's The Loudest Voice, and since we're off for Independence Day, Dan, do you want to talk at all about Stranger Things, which debuts on Independence Day? I'm not allowed to. Having broken the embargo last week on Mr. Iglesias, I don't want to... Never forget, Dan. (laughs) I don't want to get in trouble with Netflix by saying anything at all about Stranger Things, other than that it is definitely a show that is premiering on July 4th, and... uh, yeah, I, I believe that's all I can say. I, I can't say anything else about it. So well, we talked about. But the we can totally talk about week. Mr. Iglesias all you want. <laughs> Is that embar- your version of Designated Survivor? The embar- <laughs> no, but I did watch ten episodes of it for a review that I posted twelve hours early. I I am still so humiliated and chagrined. I I get that, Dan. But look, you know, this weekend, so you got The Rook, What Just Happened, and The Loudest Voice, which we talked about with with Lacey Rose last week. Yes, we did talk about it briefly with Lacey Rose last week. And I think that probably of those, the buzziest is going to be Loudest Voice. I'm I'm not sure, unfortunately, that it's all that good. I think there's definitely a lot of interest to watching various people in lots and lots of latex. And I think that Russell Crowe is a guarantee for an Emmy nomination, however many months down the road that is, since it will be next year's Emmys. So we're looking now 13 months into the future for Russell Crowe's imaginary latex-driven Emmy nomination. The the actual series itself is limitedly interesting, and it's got a lot of very good actors and supporting roles being underused. I've only seen four episodes, so I don't know if eventually Naomi Watts is going to become really, really good as Gretchen Carlson. I suspect she will in the two episodes that she's in that I've seen. You can see how she'll be good. But, you know, I can't say much about Seth MacFarlane's performance. He's kind of there. Uh, a lot of people who are there. The most interesting performance, honestly, and this might come from Sienna Miller, who, unlike Russell Crowe, is largely unrecognizable in her large amount of latex. And so she's actually giving a disappearing into the role performance, whereas Russell Crowe is just kind of peeking out around the latex the whole time, winking at you. Yeah, not not great, uh, but interesting. The Rook 
if you're a fan of Daniel O'Malley's novel, and I know it has a lot of fans, they pop up on Twitter here and there, you're not going to like this very much. It's it's really, um, it is very little like the book. The book is a lot of fun. The book is often very funny. The series takes itself way too seriously, has abandoned almost all of the plot from the book, and it's just not what readers of the book are probably going to want, or at least what this reader of the book wanted. And finally, that Fred Savage show, I, I don't know, because we're two days out and it doesn't sound like Fox is going to send out screeners for it. So, it, so we have no idea what just happened. We have no idea what just happened or what's going to happen. And I will probably skip it because if you want to pique my interest and if you want me to pique other people's interests... You, you gotta send screeners. You gotta get me episodes of things because otherwise. With a clear embargo, right, Mr. <laughs> right, Mr. Iglesias? <laughs> yes, you need to put the embargo across the top in bold letters <laughs> because otherwise, look, I, what can I say? I was really anxious to tell the world about Mr. Iglesias. It, it seemed really important to get that news out there. You can't blame me for jumping the gun. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Dan and I, as he mentioned, will be taking the week of July 4th off. We'll be back at you July 12th. While we're sitting out poolside bantering about the Red Sox and the Dodgers, please be sure to check out THR's other great podcasts, including Josh Wiggler's genre podcast series regular. That will feature next week, the return of Stranger Things and what you need to remember from when that show last aired, which was what? 17 years ago? Yeah, there you go. Several of the teenage stars are now senior citizens. It's very, it's, oh, God damn. Now I just blew that embargo too. (laughs) (sighs) Sorry. Well, until then, Dan, be sure to rate us, subscribe, tweet us. Send us a smoke signal. Dan, you usually do this part. I do. And so that's the part where I normally tell people that they like us. They should subscribe to us on their favorite podcasting platforms. If they really like us, they should rate us on those platforms. And if they really, really like us, they should review us. They should always say hi to us on Twitter. We like saying hi. And for future mailbag purposes, if you have anything you want to tell us via email, you can reach us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's the number five. Normally here, I would say until next week, Leslie, but until two weeks from now, Leslie. Until two weeks from now, Dan. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.